Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to see all of your smiling eyes. Happy Thanksgiving. Just a quick, quick show of hands. I know that for many of us, we've been through a year and a half of having to hold off on the family gatherings and all that. And so I know for some people, it is just like Thanksgiving and it's just let her rip. It's just like the mentality. And uh, so has anyone done the, like, ever, has anyone done a family gathering so far? You can just throw your hands up. No one's judging, you know. Uh, anyone, has anyone done the double yet? Like you did the Friday, the, the Saturday? No. Anyone doing that this weekend? You're going to do at least like, yeah, a few more. Awesome. Anyone going for a triple, like the hat trick? Like you were like Friday, we took Saturday off. It's going to be a Sunday night thing, a Monday night thing. Well, we hope that you're having an incredible Thanksgiving. There's so much for us to be thankful for. Uh, this morning, we are going to be continuing, as Lois alluded to earlier on, and as just simply the graphic on the screen says, uh, we're, we've been doing a series called The Good Life. And we've been talking about what does the good life mean and entail. We live in a culture that is constantly telling us what a good life looks like, or maybe you grew up in a household where you were told what the good life looks like. And for us, as a community that wants to be uh, followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, we believe that we discover the good life not by looking at our culture or looking within our hearts or even looking at our families, but we discover it as we look to Jesus. And this morning, I I want to address a topic that I think our culture gets wrong, I think that often um, families get wrong, and I think often the church even gets wrong. And that's simply a view of the good life, which I'll just say it this way. You can go to the next slide. It's just this. The good life is found in satisfying romantic sexual relationships. Uh, Or another way, maybe we could just summarize it a little bit easier, just to say this. The, The good life equals sexual fulfillment. I'm going to leave this up on the screen right now. Cole, if you can do a couple photographs with me just preaching with this on the screen. Um, Because obviously I'm going to say some things that don't go along with this uh, down the road. However, uh, for those of you who track with our emails, there is a picture that was taken a while back. I was preaching a similar kind of situation, talking about a a lie our culture tells us about the good life. And um, I was just thinking, like, this is not really what we're trying to say. um, but I figured this, this could at least get us some attention. You know, maybe our attendance might jump up. Um, we'll get a picture of this out on uh, Instagram or whatever. Uh, this is obviously something, I don't, I don't need to go into detail about our culture, uh, hypersexualized culture, a culture that is about experiencing sexual fulfillment in whatever desires you have, navigating those things. And ultimately, if it doesn't hurt anyone, it's good, go for it, is essentially the message we're told. But the truth is, is I would say that as, as much as that is our culture and we read it in advice columns and we either it's explicitly stated to us or it's implicitly stated in us in the media we consume and the conversations we have and the arguments that we get into and debates that we have, I would argue that this is actually a lie that so often creeps into the church as well. Uh, I, I think of uh, a story that Shane Claiborne, who is a theologian and political activist, Christian guy, uh, and he shared about his growing up in his book called The Irresistible Revolution. And he talks about this experience of going up to the front, all the kids coming up to the front of his Methodist church and the pastor sitting down with them and taking out a picture of what would be called kind of the traditional family, mom, dad, and maybe two, three kids. And uh, the pastor essentially started to share about how family is so important, that it is the, the, the bedrock of our society and, more importantly, of the church. And then he went on to say, like, essentially, so keep your eyes open because you know down the road one day you're going to get married and you need to have kids. 
Essentially, the message that he was told was you need to do your part. It is your godly service to go, to find that special someone, to get married, and to make babies. And this is a message that so many of us have been given over and over again. It is assumed that that is just a part of what discipleship looks like. You get married, have kids. Uh, And this can be seen, I remember having a conversation with a bunch of friends who have gone off to study at Bible college. They finish high school and they want to go off and and grow in their spiritual faith and want to learn more about the Bible. And so they go off to Bible college and and many of them sharing this experience about how many people they met in their first day there who uh, they called it instead of Bible college, just call it bridal college. Uh, Because they're going there, they want to find that special someone. That is what's driving it. They heard people use the term, find a, get a ring by spring, non-ironically, like not to be funny, like seriously, that's why they were there. And so there is this emphasis or this pressure to say, this is what we need to do to do our part to be good followers of Jesus. It means we need to go and get married and have kids. And I think that there are some really important things that we need to address and talk about as we acknowledge and wrestle with this reality, whether we are being shaped by the culture around us or whether we are being shaped by lies that the church has embraced about sexual fulfillment. But first, before I talk about all the things that I think we get wrong or are misguided, I want to talk about the thing that I think we get right. And simply that is to say that I think sexuality is an important thing that we need to talk about. And I think we have all kinds of misconceptions and misunderstandings about it, but that doesn't mean that it's something bad and we need to ignore and pretend isn't there, but rather it's something that's important that we engage in. If you were to go through and read through your Bible and starting at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, there's this interesting thing that happens. There is this poem that talks about the creation of the world. And as God continues to look, after, look at each thing that he has created, he's given it meaning and purpose, and he's given it a calling and a function. And as it is doing that, he looks at his creation and he says that it is good. And so it creates all these different things, ultimately climaxing in creating humanity, male and female, who he creates in his image, and then he gives us the Sabbath. And then we move into Genesis 2, and we get another version of this story, one about a man named Adam working in a garden. And he's been created by God, and there's this interesting thing that happens, especially if you've been reading through this text, you're reading through Genesis 1. It's good, it's good, it's good. God saw that it was good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then when you get to Genesis chapter 2, God's created all these things. He's placed Adam in the garden to look after it, this perfect paradise. And here's what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, this is just a bizarre verse. It would stick out in such a profound, significant way if you're reading through this text, especially in the original Hebrew, because all of a sudden you've been thinking, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then suddenly our attention is drawn to something that is not good. And this is before the fall. This is before sin enters into creation. And so here we have the Lord looking at Adam in his solitude and says, it is not good for man to be alone. And so deeply rooted in within each and every one of us, there is this desire to connect with other people. Uh, God creates Eve, or the woman, and she gives uh, places in the garden to work alongside Adam. And then it says this in Genesis 2, verse 25. It says this, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 
And this is about so much more than sex. This is about connection and intimacy. When I think about this, it's not just simply about a husband and wife relationship, although that hopefully is certainly true. I mean, this is the kind of relationships that we all desire to have with others. Those relationships where we can be open about who we are, where we don't feel like we need to hide, where we're not even thinking about how are they perceiving me and what kind of vibes am I giving off, but there's just this openness and freedom that is present. Deborah Hirsch, a theologian, writes this in her book, Redeeming Sex. She says, spirituality can be described as a vast longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to probe, and to understand our world. And beyond that, it is the inner compulsion to connect with the eternal other, which is God. So we could just talk about spirituality being this longing to connect in intimate relationship with God. And then she says this, um, Uh, Essentially, it is a longing to know and to be known by God on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. And then she goes on to describe sexuality in a similar way. She says, sexuality can be described as the deep desire and longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to understand that which is other than ourselves. Essentially, it is a longing to know and be known by other people on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. So so for so many of us, we simply think about sex and sexuality as something that needs to climax in physical contact and intercourse in an orgasm. But she is encouraging us to see sexuality as being about so much more than that. Rather, sexuality is our desire and longing to connect with others, to be known, and to know them. It might just say these are words that immediately come to mind as we think about it, to be intimate, and not just in a physical intimacy, in fact, not in physical intimacy necessarily, but rather in a connecting, and an opening, in a vulnerability that can happen, and to be embraced. Uh, just recently, I was in a conversation, and we were talking about covcoms. Uh, our covenant communities, which essentially kind of function as our small groups, uh, opportunities for us to gather with other people and to share what's going on. And we were talking about how sometimes it is just so difficult to get out of the house because we're tired and we're busy and there's just, oh, it'd be so much easier just to watch Netflix or whatever on that particular evening. But however, whenever we go and we gather with others, it is always such a great thing. And I remember, uh, and just, just uh, the friend I was talking with, he, he shared, he said, sometimes you just show up at your covenant community and you're just like, I've got nothing. Like, I just made it here. My family, we just made it here. It's been a long day, a long week. We've been going through all of this. And there is this invitation to just say, you can just come and to be where you can be intimate and connected and vulnerable and embraced. You can just be. I think this is a deep longing that we all have in our lives, and it is a good, godly thing given to us. Maybe we just say it this way. It is this desire we all have to know and to be known. But of course, this is not the reality so many of us live with. And even in a culture that is hypersexualized, this is not the reality that we so often see and experience. Genesis chapter 3 begins to talk about this thing we call the fall. 
It's humanity's disobedience, their desire to go their own way rather than go the way of God. And as we read about their decision, the consequences that immediately become apparent are this. It's Genesis 3 verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and his wife, were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so immediately, their, their sin, it actually doesn't propel them into a deeper, closer more intimate relationship, it actually divides them. It it results in them beginning to blame each other. It it results in them looking at each other with with anger and frustration. Rich uh, Villodas, who's a pastor at a church in Brooklyn, he writes this, from this point on, the human experience is marked more by using than by communion, more by destructive separation of body and soul than by a body-soul unity more by a paralyzing preoccupation with our bodies rather than a holy awareness. And so those words that we just looked at, words like intimacy, connection, vulnerability, uh, embrace, we see all of those things just broken because of the reality of sin. Instead, we find ourselves drawn towards a desire to use other people for our own pleasure, This results in this dehumanizing and turning people into objects or obstacles that stand in the way of getting what we want. It results in us hiding ourselves from other people and cutting ourselves off from others. I mean, this is what's so destructive about the hookup culture, about Tinder, and about pornography, is that specifically in the context of sexuality and sex, it's a longing for connection without committed, invested relationship. And it dehumanizes the other person. It turns them into an object rather than a person created in the image of God, meant to be loved and cared for. And so this, I think, is something, the reality that we navigate in our current cultural experience. But I think Jesus has a lot to say about what the good life looks like. And he offers us something better. He doesn't just simply offer us, well, this is good enough, and if we try to act in a certain way, and you can get all the pleasure you want within certain boundaries, but Jesus actually has something better for us to live for. And so I want to share with you that right now. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn it to Matthew chapter 19. This is a passage that's typically uh, preached on when it's talking about divorce, but I think that that the writer of the Gospel of Matthew is doing something really interesting here that I want to dive into. So he says this, uh, this is the story. Some Pharisees came to him, being Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, quick context. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses allows, he essentially gives the agreement to say that it is appropriate for a man to divorce his wife. Now, this is back in a patriarchal society. Uh, women were essentially viewed as property, and there was a lot of debate about what was a valid reason to divorce your wife. Um, so there are some who would say, oh, you can divorce her for pretty much any reason. If she, like, burns the toast, like, go ahead. You, the marriage can be over. And then there were some who would say, no, there is no reason ever to divorce your wife. And so this is the question they bring to Jesus. They go, what is your opinion? How do you interpret this passage given or this verse um, in Deuteronomy? How do you interpret this command? And here's Jesus' response. He says, haven't you read, he replied, 
That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so Jesus says, you know, you're trying to figure out this command, but he says, let's go back to the beginning. What is the purpose? What is the role? What is really happening when we begin to talk about what marriage is? What is its purpose? And he's saying it's this two becoming one flesh. He's saying there's something profound and significant there. So you're trying to figure out another reason about this, about divorce. He's saying, let's actually talk about what is going on in marriage. And that prompts this question. Go to the next slide. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So essentially he said, why, why is this in there then? And Jesus' response is, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And so this is a loaded thing which we can unpack some other time, but I want to just simply address a few different things here. First off, he's saying the reason why Moses gave this command, it's not because he wants you to do this. He's not saying this is something you are entitled to do. He is saying this is something that this is something that Moses gave to you because of the hardness of your hearts, because of your own selfishness, because of the brokenness that we see in our world, the way in which sin has run rampant, has turned people into objects and dehumanized us and cut us off from each other. Well, this prompts an interesting question from his disciples. We don't know if this was on the spot or as they were walking away. The disciples said to Jesus, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Now, what is being said with this statement? First off, in the ancient world, it was expected that you would get married. In fact, it was, it was almost considered wrong to not. It was going against God's original command, which you find in Genesis chapter 1, to go, to, be, um, to go and be fruitful, to go and multiply, to go and have children. And so for the disciples who are all good Jews, they see Jesus and they're going, wait a minute, marriage is supposed to be this great thing, and yet you're making it sound like this actually might be really difficult and really hard. Why are you making this great gift that God has given us, this, this command that God's given us, something that's so hard and difficult? And notice Jesus' response. Go to the next slide. He says this, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. Now, First off, a eunuch, some of you are, going, some of you are squirming already, um, and then some of you are like, I have no idea what that word is. A eunuch is someone, particularly in the ancient world, who had, had their, um, they were no longer able to procreate, um, specifically in the male sense. Usually it was because their genitals were, or parts of their genitals were removed, so they could no longer engage in sexual intercourse. And these were people who were ostracized by the Jewish community. Again, probably linking back to the command in Genesis 1 to go and to multiply. These were people who were not allowed to go and participate in the worship of the people of Israel. And it's fascinating that Jesus actually begins to bring them up and he essentially says, you realize that there are eunuchs in the world. You know about them. You've heard about them. There's those who that's been forced. They've been born that way. So some sort of disformity or something like that. Uh, Then there's those who are eunuchs. They've been made eunuchs. Uh, Maybe they've been captured, forced into slavery, something like that. But then Jesus says this, there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
It's that there are those who have said, no, no, I'm going to be so sold out for the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I'm not going to get married. And I'm not going to let my sexuality or sexual desire for sexual intercourse be the thing that leads me and guides me. Rather, I'm going to live for something even better. This quote uh, from Rich Velotis, again, from The Deeply Formed Life. I think this is really important because one of the things we don't realize is that Jesus is talking about himself here. I mean, he's the one who lives like a eunuch. As far as we know, Jesus was never married. In fact, we're almost positive he was never married, never had children, uh, in all likely, not in all likelihood. He died on the cross at the age 33 as a virgin. And for many of us, specifically in our culture, we would look at that and go, well, he missed out. I love the way that Rich Velotis says this. He says this, Jesus' sexuality was not diminished or disordered or deficient. To be sexual doesn't mean to be sexually active, nor does it mean that Jesus lusted after others. He is the sinless son of God who fully participated in the human experience. We tend to believe that unless one is having intercourse with another person, his or her sexuality is not fully manifested. But that is not true. Jesus lives the human experience to the full, um, to the full connecting with others intimately, compassionately, and sacrificially. Although it is true that sexual intercourse flowing from the sacred context of marital covenantal love is a beautiful sign of God's love, it is not the only way of living one's sexuality to the fullest. Now, I want to clarify, this is not saying that sex should be had outside of marriage. Uh, Rich Velados, and as I would also say, is that sex was created, sexual intercourse was created to be had in a marriage context, a covenant relationship between two people. But here's the thing that's really interesting about this. He's saying that, but realize that that is not the only way one can express sexuality. I mean that in the context of connecting with other people and that longing and that desire for intimacy with others. Maybe another way you could say it this is that the human experience is not about experiencing sex. It's about experiencing and sharing the love of God. And we simply call this experience of the love of God the reality of what we call the kingdom of God. And in this way, we know that singleness, those who've committed to live a life where they will not get married, or those who are just simply in a situation where they won't get married, that they are not a failure, and that they are not in some sense missing out on what it means to be human. They are not missing out on the good life. Rather, good life. rather the good life transcends and about so much more than having sex but rather is about living in connection and living out the love of God for his kingdom. I remember a conversation I had a little while ago, um, and essentially the question that came up in this conversation was with uh, a couple guys who were not Christians, and they were talking about how marriage is essentially an antiquated idea. It means it's out of date. It doesn't make sense anymore. And a long time ago, it made sense because there's this element of protection and social, um, uh, social um, it just kind of a foundation for society and all those things was really helpful and, and safety nets for people. But now we have those things in different ways. We don't really need marriage anymore. And I couldn't help but think, well, in one sense, you are right. But as a Christian, we don't believe in marriage that people get married to serve all those reasons. It's not to make society a better place. It's rather to live out the mission of God. And I think we see that very clearly here. 
Uh, in, in Matthew 22, a few chapters later, Jesus has been approached by these men called the Sadducees. And they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, basically they're asking questions about the resurrection. And they give to them this provocative kind of question. It's the kind of question that like, a, you know, your, your eight-year-old or if you have kids or nephews or nieces, they come to you like kind of try to be like a little bit annoying. And so their question is, is basically there's this man and this woman and they're married. The man dies. So another man marries her and then he dies. Another man marries her and he dies. And it goes on and on and on like a, a terrible Norm McDonald joke. And, uh, and then it kind of goes on and on. And then ultimately it ends with them asking, so when the resurrection happens, who's going to be married to this woman? And here's Jesus' response. He replied, you are an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And so for Jesus, he is saying, no, no, wait a minute. Marriage serves a greater purpose. He says, but it's actually about creating a picture about what life in the resurrection is going to look like. Because in the resurrection life, marriage is going to be antiquated. Because the intimacy and the connection that one finds in a relationship expressed in marriage is going to be something that is experienced by all of us as we experience this deep, rich communion with God and with one another. We might just say it this way, that marriage isn't the end of the world, but sexuality is. Uh, I love the way that Ronald Rollhauser puts it in his book, The Holy Longing. He says this, sexuality is a beautiful, good, extremely powerful, sacred energy given us by God and experienced in every cell of our being as an irrepressible urge to overcome our incompleteness, to move toward unity and consummation with that which is beyond us. Marriage and I would argue that just healthy Christian sexuality, even within the life of a single person, is about the anticipation of the communion with God and with one another that we, will, we were all created for and we will ultimately all experience in the resurrection. And so as we navigate our lives now today, whether married or single, I think that it should be marked by these characteristics of healthy sexuality, intimacy, connection, vulnerability, and we need to see all of this through the lens of mission, that we are in a sense giving a little bit of a taste of the reality that is to come, of the communion that we are all created to have with God and with one another, one of self-giving, sacrificial love. I might just say it this way, the good life is experienced as we engage in relationships of self-giving, mutually indwelling love that points to the reign of God in our lives and in our world. That means we are not controlled by our sexual desires, but rather we acknowledge them, we're not afraid to talk about them, and we realize that they are always either being lived into or being put aside because we ultimately want our lives to proclaim the world that is to come, the reign of God found in Jesus Christ. There's a woman named Sister Virginia. She's a nun. She's a part of the School Sisters of Notre Dame. And she has this beautiful way of putting it. I think it just captures the calling of both, um, uh, both married people and single people. She says it's loving the one through the many and loving the many through the one. Now, she is a nun, so she has taken a vow of celibacy. She will never get married. She will, uh, or I, I believe she's actually passed away now, and so she, never, she was never married. But she said it this way. She viewed her life as loving the one 
through the many, the one being God. And so her calling, her invitation in life, in her singleness, she was going to love God by loving the many, everyone, by loving all the people who God brought into her life, by showing compassion and generosity, by listening, by being vulnerable to, with them and being open to their own vulnerabilities. And then she says this about those who are in marriage relationships. She calls it loving the many through the one, which is she says that your relationship, your marriage relationship should be one that spurs you on to bless others. I mean, this is an important thing that we just simply need to acknowledge about marriage within the Christian world. It's not to make society a better place. It's not for tax benefits. It's not for any of those things. It is ultimately driven because we believe that in marriage, that two becoming one allows them to live out the mission of God better than they can do individually. That is the heart and drive for Christian marriage. It's not about compatibility. It's not because we, we are excited for them to, to have kids. All those different things are great, but ultimately the driving force behind it is to say that they are going to be people who love the many through the one. It's that ultimately through their marriage that others would be blessed and come to know who God is and see the reality of God's reign in their lives. We live in a culture where loneliness is so very real. And I want to take time to just simply acknowledge for the singles within our community, whether you um, are single, you've just never been married, whether you're divorced, uh, whether you're widowed, uh, whether you're a man or a woman, wherever you find yourself, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that that can be an incredibly lonely journey. And while those who are married will often face loneliness as well, it is not in the same kind of way. Uh, James Martin, who is a priest, um, he wrote a book called The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. It is a great book. And he simply says this, and I think this is really helpful for us, me as a married person, to be able to make sure I remember and listen to. It's the life of the religious chastity can also be lonely. No matter how many friends you may have, how close you are to your family, how supportive your religious community is, and how satisfying your ministry is, you still have to face an empty bed at night. Go to the next slide. There is no one person with whom you can share good news, on whose shoulder you can cry, or on whom you can always count for, for a hug after a hard day. Single, divorced, or widowed men and women know this feeling too. In a culture where loneliness runs so rampant, where we are so divided, I do think it's important for us as a church and a church that often will elevate marriage as being the be-all, end-all. I actually think we sometimes create it into an idol. I think it's important we simply acknowledge this, that we take it seriously. And then I think we need to respond. Because in a culture, a church culture sometimes, that divides marrieds and singles, we want to strive to be one where all are seen as a part of God's kingdom. Marva Dawn, in her book, Sexual Character, Beyond Technique to Intimacy, she writes this, I am convinced that if the church could provide more thorough affection and care for persons, many would be less likely to turn falsely to genital sexual expression for the social support they need. We believe in this call to chastity, that sex was created for marriage. And we want to journey with people through the feelings of loneliness, or rejection that they might feel. Because sex is not an indicator of the good life. 
but rather we discover the good life. Go to the next slide. I'll just summarize it again this way. The good life is experienced as we engage in relationships of self-giving, mutually indwelling love. That's just a fancy way of saying the love that God places in our hearts, the same kind of love revealed in Jesus Christ as we express that love to others. And that points to the reign of God in our lives and in our world. And so what does this look like in very practical terms? Well, throughout this series, we've been simply talking, we call it practicing the good life. And this morning, I want to invite you to engage in the practice of hospitality. Um, go to the next slide. Hospitality is simply the idea of opening up your life, opening, in some cases, your home, maybe your dining room table up to others, and inviting them to come and to be a part of your life. And this forces us to actually open up our lives to other people. Uh, Ronald Rollheiser, again, in his book, The Holy Longing, he writes this, to be an apostolic community, church is not necessarily to be with others with whom we are emotionally, ideologically, and otherwise compatible. Rather, it is to stand shoulder to shoulder and hand in hand, precisely with people who are very different from ourselves, and with them, go to the next slide, hear a common word, see a common creed, share a common bread, and offer a mutual forgiveness so as, in that way, to bridge our differences and become a common heart. And we believe one of the best places for that common heart to happen is at the table, in the living room, in the dining room. Lauren Winner, in her book, Real sex, she puts it this way. So often we see a division between the singles and those who are married within the church. And she says it this way. Make sure that you have an odd number of chairs at your dinner party. Make sure it's a place where both singles and married people are together. Because even though there might be seen as divisions, ultimately, whether married or single, we are all called to live and embody the kingdom that we discover as we live in the same kind of love that Jesus has shown us. I want to transition to the communion table. If you've got your communion cup, I invite you to get it out. As we share in this meal together, we are proclaiming this is a marriage banquet. Uh, so often the image that is used for the church, made up of both married people and single people, is the bride of Christ. And we live with this deep conviction that through the cross and the resurrection, we have been saved from our sins, that we have been cleansed and purified and brought into an intimate relationship with God through Jesus. So let's take a few seconds to reflect on that sacrifice of Jesus. And we'll eat and drink together in just a moment. 